the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blinn, producer of the program, and glad to have you along on this Wednesday afternoon, the 7th of November, 2018, and uh, the day after Election Day. And um, many of you know I am the producer of the program and have been for many years. In fact, I was telling somebody just the other day that in January it will be 15 years of producing the Georgine Rice Show. So please pray for me. Uh, speaking of praying for, uh, please continue to pray for Georgine as she is on her mission trip and just wrapping it up in the next couple of days. And I know that uh, in somewhere in the next 48 hours or so, she'll uh, get on an airplane and travel back to uh, Portland and uh, certainly be praying for her for traveling mercies and uh, that uh, the last couple of days of her trip will be a blessing. Um, one of the things that uh, when we sat down and talked about this uh, particular stretch of shows that uh, that we have here that you've heard the guest hosts for, and of course, I'd like to uh, you know, thank those who have guest hosted the program in the past uh, couple of days, and as well as the uh, two that are yet to come. Uh, but uh, the, and we'll talk about them all later. And but uh, one of the things I noted early on was, "Hey, Georgine, you're going to miss Election Day." She wasn't upset about it. She just wasn't upset about it. And pretty much said, you do it. And 14 years, she's been asking me to host a show. 14 years, I've said no. Uh, finally acquiesced to do the show that you heard last Friday, the Friday Fun, with Justin Mansfield and our special guest, Sam Winnington. And uh, I still couldn't shake the Election Day assignment. So here I am in the, ch- in the chair, in the esteemed chair of Georgine Rice, which, trivia will note, I sat in before Georgine. Well, while she's been gone, we got new chairs in the studio. So I can honestly say I, I am uh, not sitting in Georgine's chair, uh, but uh, a mere replacement thereof. But uh, I guess next week that means she'll be sitting in my chair. Behind the board for me today is Justin Mansfield, our program director. Appreciate Justin uh, taking my spot as I take Georgine's spot. Uh, we're both of us pretty much we were, wish we were in Georgine's spot. So that it's it's, it's all good. But uh, coming up on the show, we've got a great lineup of guests. Uh, we've got uh, coming up in the next couple of segments, uh, our friend from Taxpayer Association of Oregon will help us. Uh, Jason Williams, he's going to help us look at the local and state races and uh, what the mean, what it means, what they say. Um, not a great day for conservatives in Oregon last night. Not going to be uh, <laughs> not going to not going to hide behind that. Um, so we'll certainly take a look at that. We'll see uh, what Jason has to say. Are there any cause for optimism? Is there any cause for pessimism? Uh, should conservatives uh, be uh, starting our own caravan and walking to the uh, Idaho border? He'll he'll let us know. He'll tell us if we should be and uh, certainly. Uh, you know, talk us down and if we shouldn't be. So uh, Jason Williams uh, will be joining us in uh, the next couple of segments. Also at uh, this hour, the stream's John Zmirak is going to join us. He's going to talk about what uh, he thinks Democrats will do with control of the House and the way that John Zmirak 
always can, and that's certainly uh, directed to the point, and uh, always appreciate his, his take on things uh, as he joins the show fairly regularly. And in the second hour, we've got uh, Lee Edwards, an expert from uh, Heritage. He's going to talk about um, uh, how the Democrats took the House. We'll also hear from another Heritage expert, Marie Fishpaw. We'll talk about the healthcare angle of things. Uh, Jeff Dickens, Dep- uh, D- Dickens, Deputy Research Director for the MRC, the Media Research Center, will join us next hour as well, uh, talking about the media coverage of this uh, election season, specifically last night's news coverage. And, uh, you know, was there any bias in it? Oh, I don't think we really need to ask, but he'll certainly tell us for sure. And uh, we'll wrap things up as we'll talk to Ron Amal from Transitional Youth. We've got a special day with Transitional Youth coming up next Thursday. I want to make sure that you know about it. And uh, for those who don't know, we want to make sure that you're in on what's going on at Transitional Youth, what they're up to, and the amazing things they're doing for our community. Looking at the election results, I'm going to start over in Washington since there's far less of them that we're going to look at right now and uh, continue to be in a holding pattern to some extent in the Congressional District 3, which is just across the river in southwest Washington, as uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler still holds about a 10,000-vote lead over Carolyn Long, uh, 52% to 47% and change, um, and it's about a 10,000 gap with, the I'm told, about 84,000 votes yet to count. Um, so it's going to probably be, I've told, been told a couple times that uh, it may be tomorrow. In 2018, it will take till tomorrow to find out the, that uh, that um, hopefully Jamie Herrera-Butler um, keeps her seat and um, that uh, he continues to uh, not uh, flip another, another House seat over to the Democrats. Um, as you know, that definitely did happen, and um, that will be something we discuss. Uh, the, uh, the Democrats did take control of the House. That is the major uh, re- news story from that side of things. Um, uh, Kate Brown is uh, remaining the governor of the state of Oregon, and Measure 102 passes, and the rest of them failed. Uh, I, I wish I could uh, offer better news than that, but 103, 104, 105, and 106 all go down. Uh, measure 102 um, is the only one that passed this cycle. And, uh, you know, lest, lest that not be the news cycle uh, between the uh, House Democrats, the um, uh, the possible scepter, the probable scepter of uh, the return of uh, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House in the new year, a lame duck session forthcoming, if that wasn't news enough, um, you know, you had a bizarre, uh, contentious uh, press conference this afternoon with the president and uh, getting into a uh, verbal, uh, verbal uh, argument with uh, members of the media, and uh, which led into um, the firing, essentially, of Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So one of the jokes that we have here at the Georgine Rice Show behind the scenes is that when Georgine goes away, um, news breaks. It's just just how it is. And... Oh wow! Did it, it did it break today? So certainly uh, we'll continue to uh, follow the the Jeff Sessions story that's just developing now. Obviously, it's been uh, known for a couple hours, uh, but um, the the um, the main gist of it is time will tell on a lot of it. Um, I think it is still very much a de- um, developing story that we will continue to uh, follow into Georgine's return, which will be Monday. Coming up on the program tomorrow, though, uh, we've got uh, Joseph Anfuso from Forward Edge International. He'll be, uh, he'll be interviewing Paul Young, and uh, that'll be coming up tomorrow on the program. And then uh, longtime pastor Clark, Clark Tanner will host the program on Friday. He's with the organization Pastor Serve, 
And amongst his guests will be our good friend Samuel Hakim from uh, Redeeming the Nations of Ministries. Uh, so we appreciate those uh, those folks coming in and uh, filling out the uh, roster of uh, fill-ins for Georgine. I'm sorry you're stuck with me today, but you are. Uh, we appreciate uh, you listening, and uh, we'll uh, check in with Jason Williams after we take this break here on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. I'm James Blinn, producer of the Georgine Rice Show, sitting in for Georgine, who will be returning on Monday. And uh, appreciate each and every one of you tuning in on this Election Day Aftermath edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And uh, I want to take a look now at some of the uh, the local and state results and so, some of the meaning and go a little bit deeper into them and just kind of get a, a feel for where we are at here in Oregon and uh, spe- you know, specifically Oregon with our good friend from Oregon Watchdog and the Taxpayer Association of Oregon, Jason Williams. Jason, how are you? A little bit wounded, but I am still striving. Uh, looking at the results, it seems like as bad of a night as possible for conservatives in Oregon. How bad yeah, is it? It, it? it was it was a horrible night, and we're talking kind of like locally here in Oregon. I mean, a whole host of uh, good ballot measures failed, uh, and good candidates got knocked out. Um, uh, on a political, looking at it from a political party perspective, the Republicans lost three House seats, all incumbents, and they lost a open seat in the Senate, and that gives uh, that continues the one party rule in the state, uh, and that also gives that one party, the Democratic Party, a supermajority in the House and Senate, so they can vote taxes because you need sixty percent vote on all taxes. They can vote through all the taxes they want without having to get bipartisan support. And when there's one-party rule without bipartisan support and you're able to vote for taxes and you've got that supermajority, really bad things happen. All right, so you started you started the conversation off with a severe downer, so we'll, work, uh, we'll try, to work our way, uh, try to work our way a bit out of the, the, the mire here. Uh, let's start off with the governor's race. Was it ever close? I mean, how surprised were you at the outcome? Um, well, it, it, it has been close. The polls had it up and down. Um, but you just got to take a step back. This was not the year to run for uh, a governor's seat uh, because it, it all comes back down to this historical trend. It's a part of America that for 100 years that the party in a midterm election, the president, um, the party that's not in, in the presidency, Americans always vote for uh, against the president's party in a midterm. And it's going on for 100 years. This is the way Americans vote. So needless to say, and they've got it down to a science based upon the state of the economy and how popular the president is. And of course, our president is just right there at the, at the medium line for popularity, which is not good. So they were saying months ago, hey, Based on the poll, based on historical information, we we know that the opposition party, the Democrats, are going to gain 30 seats, and they gained more than 30 seats. They did not gain in the Senate, which was breaking with tradition. So, people who are looking at this in a partisan way, you really need to count your blessings because the country um, did not go the way that it historically did, and mostly did. So now I say all that to say that's what hit Oregon, that wave across the country. So the fact that uh, Governor Newt Buehler was running against a tide, I thought he did very good. Um, 
and uh, he was competitive, and it was the most spending in a race in Oregon history. Um, those things are good. He didn't win, but it was no surprise because you really had, you know, you needed something a little bit more. Well, and if you look back, you mentioned the you know the the wave and the, and whatnot, and as far as who's in the White House. The closest the Republicans have come was in the first midterm of Barack Obama's administration when Chris Dudley came within a Nats wing of, of Salem. Yeah. Yeah. So in a lot of what we see here in Oregon, it, these things go in cycles. And so we need to be uh, encouraged and ready. And speaking of cycles, 2000, year 2006 was a nightmare for uh, taxpayers, and we, we lost uh, good people. A lot of incumbents got kicked out. A lot of ballot measures failed. And so in, in a way, what we're experiencing now, we experienced in 2006. But you know what? In 2010 was a wave year that went the other way. It went towards more conservatives. It went for the party not in power. Obama was in power, so it went Republicans' way. And we saw six really bad incumbents get knocked out of the Oregon legislature, and six really good people get put in. Now, this time, we only saw four, but back in 2010, we saw six. So we've actually, so I, I say that in the past, we have been here before, we suffered some losses, there'll be some bigger victories in the election cycles ahead. Um, and I say that because sometimes people get discouraged, and then they end up not voting and not participating, and that's the worst case scenario. Uh, we're in a fight, we're in a fight for the rest of our lives, it's a good fight, this is the best place to have it. I've been around the world. I've been to communist countries. I've been, I've been to the Middle East in war areas, and I'm telling you, we got it good. This is a good fight. This is the type of fight you want to have. Be happy. Keep voting. Keep winning your neighbors. Keep winning the, uh, the arguments. You know, I think that's one of the things, and I appreciate the encouragement there, because one of the things I hear, I, I've heard more than a few times from conservatives today specifically has been, why do I bother uh, especially when it comes to the state of Oregon, uh, why do I bother? And I, I appreciate the encouragement there because I think that that is a fatigue that sets in on the conservative voter in a traditionally non-conservative state. Yes, it's dangerous to think like that, but we need to take that danger, throw it out, and put on the real danger, which is our ability to vote and communicate with our friends and neighbors. Because we, as the founding fathers said, we are the we are the keepers of the sacred fire of liberty. It's a holy fire of freedom, and that's not going to be stopped. Freedom has only expanded throughout the world, throughout history, and we're going to win in the end. So, Well, let's start. Before, before we take our break, I want to start uh, kind of wandering a little bit through these ballot measures and, and get your take on, certainly we talked about them when you were on with Georgine a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you know, the pluses and minuses and all the different things on the ballot, but... Uh, the overall, let's start with the overall question before we take our break. Did it go how you thought it would go? I mean, obviously, how we hoped it would go is different than you know how we think it may go. Well, um, I saw some of the polling on some of the measures and knew that they were behind, uh, so that was difficult. What, what kind of was frustrating is that some of these ideas that were on the ballot were unpopular to begin with before they made it to the ballot, and so... I just want to let people know if you, you, we Oregonians need to be a little bit more choosy about what we put on the ballot. If you don't have, if you don't plan to have a few million bucks to change people's minds and, and educate them, that 
just because you brought it to the ballot doesn't mean you're going to change your mind. Now, having said that, there are issues like Measure 103. This is one, keep taxes off of groceries. Very simple, but the proponents that I, I was told this morning raised $10 million, $10 million to kill this measure, which would keep groceries tax-free. Um, so the, the tax, the people who love taxes really put up a lot of money to defeat this thing, and I think the idea that there was a little bit of mix-up with people thinking, yeah, hey, I want to keep groceries tax-free, I'll vote against it. It's like, no, 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 you need to vote for it to put in the Constitution to say no taxes on groceries. A lot of people got caught up in that. Uh, and then, of course, I think being outspent when you have $10 million spent against you. Um, so that was in 104. This is another measure that uh, it just did not have the funds to combat. And we wanted to com- to convey that, you know, should be a 60% vote for all taxes. Um, so some people thought they were voting against taxes by voting, you know, against it when they wanted to vote for it. Um, it was, it was, it was, it's the way that they are raising taxes was not in a traditional tax form. So the politicians were trying to close a tax loophole, and that's very difficult to communicate to, to voters. The sanctuary city law, I saw a lot of polling on that. People had no idea what it was. Um, had a friend tell me, he's a restaurant manager, he said, oh, thank goodness I voted against the sanctuary city law because uh, I, I don't want people coming into my restaurant immigration officials coming into my... It's like, that's, it has nothing to do with the... Like, so things... This year, the ballot measures did not have money to, to explain themselves to voters. The opponents did, and then we had the wave election, which brought all kinds of new people to, to the ballot. We're almost like near record high for voter turnout for a midterm. That means you have more people you got to be able to convince to vote. Um, and it, all those things just kind of worked against ballot measures this year. Jason Williams, Taxpayer Association of Oregon, joining me here on the Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blinn, sitting in for Georgine Rice. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back, and uh, we'll continue our conversation with Jason as we continue on through the various results and uh, analyzing the uh, the aftermath of yesterday's election here on the Georgine Rice Show on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 93.9 KPDQ, the Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blinn sitting in for Georgine Rice. Justin Mansfield behind the, the, the dials and knobs and all the wonderful things keeping us going on the air today. And joining me still in this segment uh, is our good friend, uh, my good friend, Jason Williams, Oregon Taxpayer, uh, Taxpayer Association of Oregon. I will get that right. I will not put that out of order. By golly, Jason, I shall always get that right. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time out after what was, as we kind of portrayed in the last segment, not the, not a banner day for conservatives in Oregon. Were there any smaller surprises or rays of hope down the ballot at all anywhere yeah, in the state? You know, um, I thought it was interesting that uh, that there was the funniest ad that I saw on TV was from the Democratic Congressional Committee campaign committee. And they were saying, you know, vote for us because we want a middle-class tax cut. And uh, the fact that they were running ads in the Portland market saying Democrats are going to cut your taxes. Hey, dude, that's, uh, that's I, mean, I love you for that, uh, that they were taking my message there. Uh, we all want lower taxes. So in, in a way, sometimes liberals have to run as uh, conservative ideals uh, in order to win. I thought that was uh, 
that was was very funny. Um, and I'd, I'd have to say that with uh, with Oregon, that I think um, I think it's going to be good. I think sometimes these you have some uh, setbacks, you lose uh, some races, but um, Oregonians generally uh, do want lower taxes, and um, the you know it just comes down to. Um, the type of battles and the type of candidates and the type of messaging that they're doing. And a lot of times we have a lot of candidates who just want to run on, I'm a nice guy and people don't vote for that. You got to really pick some very hot, relevant, potent issues that really matter to people. And I often feel like uh, the people who I fight against are often better at picking those than, than, than we are. Certainly begs the question, what will it take to get a Republican into statewide office? I mean, I, th- I think the Oregonian was uh, referred to uh, Dennis Richardson as a unicorn today. Um, and I can't say I totally disagree with that. What what does it take to get uh, anybody in a statewide office back that uh, is of uh, conservative stripes? Um, I think it could happen at any time. I mean, you look at uh, a place like Michigan, that was a very kind of liberal, one-party state it kind of really messed things up there, and then it it kind of switched back to a Republican governor. Um, there are states where they, they they swing back and forth, and Oregon could be in ready for a swing. I would say next time we have a candidate, I mean, if you think about Newt, I appreciate him as a candidate, but I cannot think about what he would do. Uh, he kind of ran on, you know, I'm not Kate Brown, she's corrupt, uh, you know, I'm good, newspapers like me. That's good. Uh, and he was a he was a genius fundraiser. But I really wish more candidates would come out and say, "Hey, uh, I'm gonna. I want to build a, a new bridge. I want to expand, you know, I-5 up and down Oregon by an extra lane on every side. You know, things that people say, yeah, I want that. You know what I mean? And or I'm going to pass a law that says no new taxes without asking voter approval. Things like that, where people say, "Wow, you get excited behind the candidate." I would like to see more of that um, from the politicians who say they want to uh, win higher office here in Oregon. They really need to take on bigger issues. So if you just think about it, what were the issues that you saw during the campaign that made you say, oh, I want, this is what the candidate's going to do for me. That kind of got lost. I mean, it's one of those things that uh, you know we were discussing in our household uh, over the weekend uh, as we were getting ready to vote was that, that you know, despite the fact there were important things on the budget, on the budget on the ballot, um, that um, I just wasn't feeling it. I mean, we, obviously we did vote, but I wasn't feeling it. It certainly wasn't one of those things where it's like there was any number of things where I went, I am so excited to cast my ballot for this person. And, yeah. you know, it was one of those things where I think, especially when you look at the governor's race, I, I, honestly, I don't see anything particularly exciting about either candidate. Um, and uh, as people, they, they, they're just not people that motivate to me, to my stand, you know, from my standpoint, not exciting, not dynamic, not um, offering new and exciting proposals and, um, you know, things that, uh, you know, even stretch the imagination in a good way, Um so it, it, it definitely, for me, it felt like it was a good opportunity for the Republicans and the conservatives in the state to put forth an exciting candidate uh, against uh, you know, someone who maybe isn't quite as exciting in Kate Brown. Yeah, yeah, and I'll give you a perfect example here. Kate Brown got caught hiding uh, some legislation. You see, when you're, when you're governor, 
every year you got to come up with proposals. You ask all the agencies, hey, what should we do next year? And they start drafting it early. Well, unlike all other governors, she wanted to hide this process from the public so people would not know what she's drafting for next year because it's going to happen in 100 days. The Capitol is going to start up again, okay? She's already started drafting legislation, and one of them was a $700 million beer, wine, and tobacco, and cider tax, $700 million. It took a court order to release this hidden document, this hidden legislation she was planning on doing next year, which, by the way, your listeners should know, there's going to be a, you know, a $700 million beer, wine, cider, and tobacco, and vape, vape, uh, vapor product tax next year that's going to be proposed. Well, I, when we found out about this, we posted it online, and I got 7,000 likes on that thing. We, that broke records for us. 7,000 likes in about six days. Amazing. That, was one of, that, to me, was the hottest issue of the campaign that no one talked about. If I was Newt Bueller, I would have gone and said, hey, you know, you better, you better buy your uh, alcohol now because it's going to be hit with, you know, seven hundred million dollar tax increase um so that would have really outraged a lot of people and that would have hurt a lot of businesses because what we know from when you when you spike product taxes people end up buying it online they go across the border and buy it where it's cheaper and so the little grocery store gets hurt uh but the person who's uh who's drinking and smoking, they don't get hurt at all because they find a way around it. So it's kind of a, anyways, it's, it's one of those tax boondoggle things where when you begin to overtax a product beyond what it costs to actually make the product, you run into all kinds of bad behavior. And that's the kind of thing, too, with the supermajority. Makes it a lot easier to get through. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they found a way to get around the 60% rule for all taxes by saying, Oh, I'm going to tax all radio stations, but we're not going to really tax you because we would need to get a 60% vote. We're just going to say if you want to be a radio station here in Oregon, you have to donate, you know, $100,000 into this special fund for government. It's not a tax. We're just forcing you to donate for the right to be able to be here. And that's just, well, it's like, no, that's a tax. Anyway, that's what Measure 104 was about, was trying to, get to, trying to get them to say any form of taxation, forcing people to donate, taking away their tax credit, uh, creating these obnoxious, outrageous fees for something, that that's all a form of taxation, and that needed, that sh- those things should require a 60% vote. But, but so over, over the next four years, plenty of opportunities for Kate Brown to hide more legislation, but thankfully, uh, Taxpayer Association of Oregon exists to be able to expose some of that type of stuff. Uh, certainly would hope there'd be a candidate in four years that uh, would be willing to uh, stand alongside that and and fight along against some of those things. Uh, people want to know about Taxpayer Association of Oregon and what you guys do, because you, you are a valuable asset uh, to the to the people of Oregon, and I think uh, more people need to know about what you guys are doing. Tell, tell folks real fast a little bit about you and what uh, how they can check you out. Well, we've been around for nearly 20 years. Uh, our website is OregonWatchdog.com. It's a daily tax news ticker, so if you want to catch any political gossip, political news, tax news, taxes being raised in your city, your town, your state, it's there on Oregon Watchdog. Um, 
we try to expose the government waste. We just love making fun of when government spends money, you know, like when they they spent $50,000 studying drunk birds here in Oregon. You know, they got birds drunk and then tried to see if it, alcohol actually affected them. I think, you know, you and I would have figured out that um, birds probably get drunk like normal people do, and we could have saved that $50,000. So we love to expose government waste. We love to, uh, you know, fight bad politicians and get good lawmakers in there. And you can find us all at OregonWatchdog.com. Jason Williams, my friend, I appreciate you taking the time out, and I always appreciate you taking the time out to join us, and we'll certainly talk to you soon. Thanks. Jason Williams joining us, Taxpayer Association of Oregon. Oregon Watchdog is the website, and uh, you can also find them on social media as well, so be sure to check them out. Like I said, they do a great job of exposing the government waste that he was just talking about, and uh, over the next four years with uh, the the uh, supermajority uh, and uh, the governorship, it might be a good time to check into all of that. We've got more of the Georgine Rice Show coming up in just a couple moments on this Wednesday edition of the show, Election Day Aftermath. I'm James Blood, producer of the program, sitting in for Georgine. We'll be right back on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 93.9 KPDQ. Glad to have you along. I'm James Blunt sitting in for Georgine Rice. We'll be returning from her trip on Monday, and we're looking at some of the election aftermath and some of the things that have been going on around the world and around the country uh, as uh, we see on this Wednesday uh, the the after effects of all of the, um, the, the election last night and, uh, you know, Quite frankly, some of the burnout that we all feel as well, but uh, trying to put the topic to bed for now. And joining me to talk a little bit about um, how the uh, Democrats took the House and uh, how how we should react to it is uh, Lee Edwards, Ph.D., Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Institute for Constitutional Government, a leading historian of American conservatism and the author or editor of 25 books. Dr. Edwards, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, James. Thank you. So is there anything more that can be said or should be said about the elections? I guess it's inevitable. So here we go. Absolutely. Now, (laughs) I'm certainly curious as to, you know, what makes a defeat and what makes a victory? Well, that's a marvelous question. Uh, And just briefly, I would say this, that there are five essential elements of a political campaign. Money, organization, the candidate, issues, and the media. And you can take those five elements and apply them to almost any election, and you'll come up with who is going to win. So, for example, the Democrats did very well in fundraising, and that was one of the reasons why they were able to carry the House. Uh, they did not have the best candidates possible, which is the reason why they were losing some seats in the Senate. The media, which which was tilted so much towards uh, the Democrats, helped them to, I think, bring about that blue wave uh, in the House. So how, how should Republicans view the, the results from last night? Well, I think there are a couple of different things. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the president, of course, is going to say he won. It was a victory for him. And in a sense, it was because he was able to campaign and pull out some close victories in the Senate. But at the same time, uh, the the House now is going to be in the hands of Nancy Pelosi and the other uh, progressives there in the House. 
So that that could present some real problems as to how they're going to use their newfound majority. Uh, are they going to legislate or are they going to investigate? And so that, that remains to be seen right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's even something of a mini-revolt against Nancy Pelosi herself, though I do think she's going to be elected again as Speaker. I don't think the Democrats are going to, going to throw her overboard. <clears throat> I think that uh, what we have here once again is divided government. We've had it in the past. Uh, and it looks to me as though the American people are very comfortable with it. They don't want one party to have too much power for too long, which I think is one of the clues as to why the Democrats were able to carry the House, but not the Senate. Well, as, as, certainly as somebody who's a historian, put this into a little bit into a historical context. To me, it feels like uh, a fairly typical midterm, um, albeit with the gains in the Senate uh, being uh, you know, a little bit of an anomaly in this situation. Mm-hmm. Talk about historically what midterms mean to the to the party in, in the White House. Well, I think we can go back and see that in the last 70 or 80 years, there have only been three occasions when that uh, the midterms resulted in a victory for the party, the same party of the gentleman who was in the White House. Uh, one of them was FDR, one of them was Kennedy, and one of them was Bill Clinton uh, after the... Uh, the impeachment proceedings in the House. So it's very rare, and it's something, as I say, that the American people are comfortable with. They're not panicking, and I think they've sent a signal, uh, and we'll have to wait and see how, how the both the Democrats and the Republicans, if they're going to perhaps, to my mind, what has usually happened, uh, uh, James, after something like this, is that there is a period of bipartisanship, and uh, we'll see whether or not that is what happens with the Democrats and the Republicans this time around. Well, certainly, I mean, we're coming off a, a period normally uh, not as contentious, perhaps, as uh, the, the last few months have been between the Democrats and Republicans during the, the, the whole uh, Kavanaugh confirmation. Right. And well, what is going to be, uh, I think, guiding whether or not this bipartisanship is possible, and I'm, I'm not you know, terribly optimistic about it, but it is possible. It's one possible scenario. And that is that people will be looking ahead already to the next presidential election in two years from now, in 2020. And that will affect how people are going to be acting and reacting or not acting in some cases here in, in Washington. So whether we have brief cooperation or nonstop gridlock, how, how should we prepare for the next two years? Well, I think what we, what I think what the voters ought to do, and depending upon whether they were for, you know, whichever party it was and whichever candidate it was, expect him or her. Uh, and this was a terrific uh, development, by the way. And that is, there's so many uh, female uh, women who were running uh, this time and winning. And that that is something which is uh, uh, going to, I think, affect the outcomes. I think that will be more lending itself to bipartisanship. But I think that the voters should say and expect their their congressman or their senator to do what he promised to do in the campaign. And if not, to make it very clear that uh, the next election is not that far away and they'll take appropriate action. One of the things that's occurred to me over the past couple of years is that... Uh Republicans, particularly those of the of the conser- conservative persuasion, uh, more so than than some that m- perhaps are more moderate, um, tend to be a little bit more um, 
rough with their messaging. And even when they're in the right, they don't necessarily come across that way. What way? How can conservatives get themselves in a good messaging position for future success with uh, 2020 only two years away? Well, I think they have to do that, James. And if they don't, then uh, they're they're going to see that base shrink that much more. As I mentioned, made reference to the suburban college-educated women who voted in tremendous numbers, something like a 16 or an 18-point edge for Democrats over Republicans. Uh, what's going to make that up for the Republican side, for the conservative side? They will have to figure out a way to speak uh, more uh, diplomatically, if you will, um, more uh, charitably, if you will, uh, about issues and about their opponents. Uh, they're not going to be able just to depend upon ad hominem arguments over and over and over again. And I think the president is going to have to be one of those as well, is going to take cognizance of that. And I think he's already begun that a little bit uh, with his press conference this afternoon. What uh, Last question for me. What, if uh, any surprises, did you see last night that uh, specifically on the positive side of things that uh, gives you hope uh, for the future? Well, I think I think I'm I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, always have been here in in Washington D.C. as a conservative all of these years. So I think what we can take away from this is the fact that that the there was no blue wave. That there was both a blue wave in the House and a red wave in the Senate. And I think that augurs well for the future because that means that these two parties and their leaders are going to have to sit down and talk about things and come up with proposals that each can subscribe to. And maybe, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I do see the possibilities of some bipartisanship on important issues like infrastructure uh, and even uh, uh, perhaps on, on trade as well. Uh, so I think that's what we can certainly look to as a strong, well, I would say as a strong possibility in the next two years. Dr. Edwards, I certainly appreciate you taking the time out on what I would uh, safely call uh, not a slow news day. <laughs> My pleasure, James. Take care. Thank you. Dr. Lee Edwards, Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought for the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation, and is also a leading historian of American conservatism and the author of 25 books. So certainly appreciate his wisdom, his uh, his knowledge, and uh, his input on uh, the, the events of yesterday and what we should be looking forward to over to the next two years. Uh, you're listening to 93.9 KPDQ. This is the Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blunt sitting in for Georgine, and we shall return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, 93.9 KPDQ. I'm James Blinn sitting in for Georgine Rice, the producer of the program. Engineering today is Justin Mansfield. And, of course, we're looking at the, the um, re- results, the aftermath, all of the things you can uh, want to know about Election Day now that it is finally over. And uh, certainly on the national scale, we can look at things. What happened? Why did it happen? And what does it mean and what's next? And uh, here to join us to talk a little bit about that is our good friend from the stream, John Smirak. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And uh, if people want to read more, it's stream.org. 
Stream.org. Perfect. Always appreciate that. It's a great site. I check it out daily. I know Georgine does as well. They said a blue wave was coming, and while Oregon certainly is in low morale, conservatively speaking, was it a blue wave across the board? No. I mean, we have to look at in terms of perspective. When two years after Barack Obama arrived in Washington as kind of the redemp- a redemptive figure to large parts of America who was going to save America from its sins of racism, two years later, his party lost 63 seats in the House and lost control of the Senate. 63 seats, that's more than double the number the Republicans lost last night. It is historically almost certain that a, a newly elected president, his party suffers in congressional elections two years later because he's tried to do things. He's provoked a backlash. The, the, the party that lost the presidency is heavily motivated to try to claw back some power. So I think uh, Donald Trump's campaigning for candidates uh, swung a number, number of significant races. Um, we lost a few really good people from Congress. Dana Rohrabacher and uh, Dave Bratt. Uh, Dana from California, Dave Brad from Virginia, uh, but I w- but I was happy to see Steve King stay stay in Congress. I was sorry to see C- Chris Kobach lose the governor's race for Kansas. I hope that some of these good people who being retired from Congress will end up in the cabinet or in, or in the White House in some capacity. But that said, we gained power in the Senate, and a lot of the people who are leaving Congress were never Trumpers or Paul Ryan open borders Republicans. So I think the Republican Party is somewhat purified and organized behind the president now in a way it wasn't before. Well, certainly one of the things for me that uh, kind of was the anomaly and what, what seemed to me to be a typical midterm across the country was the fact that, yes, the Republicans made gains in the Senate. Uh, talk about how unusual that is and uh, you know, what, does it, what will that change despite losing the House? What will that change uh, for the president? Well, for one thing, it looks like we might have a solid 51 pro-life votes in the Senate. So we won't have to, the president won't have to nominate a stealth candidate who's been silent on issues like Roe v. Wade. He, he could actually pick someone who is openly pro-life and not have to worry about Lisa Murkowski's vote uh, in, in confirming him. Um, I think we're going we're gonna to need to see – we might need to see the Republicans get rid of the filibuster in the Senate uh, because it, it's, it's going to be misused by the Democrats who will be controlling the lower house. And remember, the House of Representatives originates all spending bills. So we're not going to see $1 to build a wall on our southern border. Then again, we didn't in Paul Ryan's Republican House anyway. I think a lot of the people who left were effectively Democratic votes on key issues for the president, such as building a wall um, and defunding Planned Parenthood. That didn't happen either. I think some of this loss can be traced to the president deferring his own agenda in favor of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell's establishment advice to go slow and focus on a tax cut. Well, I I think the president has seen that that was a mistake. One of the things that that was my observation last night was it did not feel like it was any type of referendum on the president whatsoever. The results last night uh, being more of the mainstream, more typical of a midterm. uh, Did did the Trump presidency take any damage last night? Um, I think, you know, losing Dana Rohrabacher was bad. Losing Dave Ratt was bad. Um, I, but on the other hand, holding the state of Florida is huge, absolutely crucial in terms of redistricting. Um, I, I think 
you know, the president is going to, it, it depends how the Democrats act. Are they go, going to see this as a repudiation of Trump and try to impeach him and try to impeach Brett Kavanaugh and all these things they've been promising their base and their base is increasingly the hooded thugs of Antifa and billion dollar donors like George Soros and Tom Steyer and, and Michael Bloomberg who want to take away Americans guns and shutter their churches and force them to fund abortions. I mean, the, the Democrats shoved themselves 30 degrees to the left with the election of Donald Trump. And I don't think they're going to come back to the center. I, I don't think they're going to act like a responsible patriotic political party. I think they're going to act like a bunch of puppies turned loose in a butcher shop. And that will only help the president. Of course, we're going to get two years of, uh, of gridlock and two years of frustrating government. Um, I hope the president uses the U.S. military and military funding to build a wall in defiance of the House of Representatives. I think that would be enormously popular. I mean, polls showed that a, a big majority of Americans wanted to stop the caravan from Central America, and 51% of Hispanic Americans wanted to stop it. So I think if the president, this is an opportunity for the president to focus again on the issues that got him elected, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of U.S. borders, a strong defense and a strong economy, and the Democrats are going to be obstructionists, and they're going to, it's going to be obvious that they're obstructionists. It's going to be impossible to hide. Well, I mean, I think that uh, there are a lot of people, including yourself, you're writing about it today on stream.org, uh, talking about basically with, the, with Nancy Pelosi presumably back in the speaker's chair and the Democrats in control of the House – Basically, nearly immediate shenanigans, I think, is the best way I can put it. Um, what, how in that scenario can anything get done? Well, right. I mean, I think we're going to face, it's going to be two tough years for America. Um, I, I think the Democrats are not going to work with the president. He tried to work with them on immigration. They, th they threw his, his generous compromise back in his face because they were running not as a party of America, but as a party of angry millennials and billionaire leftists. And I think that has come to define the Democratic Party. If you remember that horrible event in Charlottesville two years ago, there were two angry mobs, white supremacist nutcases on the one side and anti-fa thugs on the other. Well, the Republican Party was not captured by the white supremacists. They were repudiated universally. But on the other hand, I think the Democrats have been captured by the Antifa, hashtag resistance, let's fantasize about killing the president wing. I mean, it's, it's really like sat, the, the writers of Saturday Night Live have grabbed control of a major political party in America. So how does the president work within this new reality? How, how can he still be an effective leader? Um, I think he's going to have to do a lot of things through executive power and a lot of things through the military. And he's, there's going to be things that don't get done. They're going to be important things that don't happen. Uh, elections have consequences. And when you elect people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I think her latest thing is free, free tuition to the Electoral College for everyone in America or something like that. <laughs> I mean, uh, we're going to have two tough years. But, you know, we, our founders set up a system of government designed to have a separation of powers so that the the various parties and factions would frustrate each other and slow each other down so nobody could do anything all that extreme. And now we're going you know, we're gonna have to deal with some of the downside of that. But overall, it's a good system, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. 
Well, presumably, obviously, you know, we're going to see these problems for the next two years or so as we as we head towards the next election, of which I figure will probably the cycle should begin in about 18 hours or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the question I have is the final question is with for the Republicans to come out as best possible at the other end of that um, in a position to potentially um, retake the House, keep the White House, keep the Senate, et cetera. What what's what's a good game plan? I think the president needs to focus in on the things that got, got him the nomination and got him elected, keeping us out of foreign wars and crazy intervention, uh, re- refusing. He needs to, the Senate needs to refuse to fund Planned Parenthood. Uh, he, needs to, he needs to build a wall, even if it means citing military bases along the southern border and connecting them with a fence. Use eminent domain if he has, if he has to. But I think he sees that... The demographic trend of admitting a million people, mostly unskilled, many of them high school dropouts, into a country where we don't have the manufacturing jobs to absorb them, um, you're just you're just putting you're just inv- bringing in millions of new Democrats every few years, and you're turning one state from red to purple and purple to blue after another. Demography is not on our side unless we fix the border. That's great stuff, John. Appreciate it. Always appreciate you joining us and appreciate what, uh, you joining us today, specifically on the Georgine Rice Show. And uh, we look okay. forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Absolutely. John Zmirak, stream.org is the website that you can find uh, his articles at, writing for the stream. And uh, the article is, uh, Can the Dems in the House Tone Down the Crazy? So that's, uh, that's his article. As, as uh, One thing I've always noticed about John and uh, certainly enjoy about him is uh, he gets straight to the point and doesn't really dance around things. So uh, uh, that was uh, pretty much as straightforward as you can get. And uh, we'll certainly be talking to John in the future on the Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blinn sitting in for Georgine Rice on this uh, Election Day aftermath day. Uh, Justin Mansfield, my engineer, will return in just a couple minutes on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blinn, producer of the program, sitting in for Georgine today. Justin Mansfield behind the board, engineering the program. Appreciate you all joining me today. Uh, checking in now on the healthcare side of things, trying to figure out what does this all mean. Marie Fishpaw, Director of Domestic Policy Studies with uh, at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. Marie, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's certainly, I think, I think the uh, overall, uh, you know, I th- when you're dealing with the changes like we saw last night, uh, a little bit of confusion going on. A lot of people ran on health care on both sides of the uh, aisle. Uh, what does um, what does this mean at this point? Let's let's start with the broad question. Well, this this election shows us that health care remains a top concern for many Americans. Uh, they view it as a quality of life issue, and it's an intensely personal one. And uh, they they have a sense of anxiety around um, being able to access it. You know, one of the, the biggest thing, messages that connected with people, if you look at exit polling, was the Democrats' fear-mongering around uh, people who are sick or have pre-existing conditions' ability to access care. Um, and Republicans, rather than rather than answer Democrats' uh, charges head-on, decided to run away from the fight for the first time since Obamacare became law. So I, well, I think one of the big lessons coming out of this election is that Republicans need to have an answer that to, to how we're going to lower costs, how we're going to improve choices, and how we're going to help with the, the anxiety people feel around healthcare. So, what do you think was the uh, the the end result, uh, the toll, if you will, on the political toll on the Republicans with with last night and how it went? 
you know, what percentage do you, do you think um, was related to healthcare? Because again, it seemed like it was in almost every ad on both sides. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, the healthcare was routinely reported as one of the biggest motivating issues for why reasons people went reasons people went to the polls. Um, and you know, some pundits are trying to say that um, that the, the Republicans lost because they tried to repeal and and Obamacare, and you know that could be part of the issue. But there's a lot more at play. Liberals took this election to build the case for replacing Obamacare with even more government-run health care, so really doubling down on the, on the reasons that costs have gone up so much and choices have gone down. You know, I think um, Republicans, in the face of that, uh, chose, you know, to the extent they responded, did not offer a coherent alternative. So you know, I think it's important as we go back, as we go forward, thinking about how do we push back on government-controlled single-payer ideas, what, what is it that Republicans are trying to offer? And conservatives are going to encourage them to focus on ways to uh, improve individual choices in order to lower costs. I mean, looking ahead, obviously, with lame duck session and uh, then shortly thereafter followed by most likely two years of gridlock on just about everything. Um, I mean, is it possible to get anything done? Well, I think that comes down to whether Republicans have the political will. You know, the Senate could, in theory, finish the job that they still haven't finished um, in repealing Obamacare. The House took a vote and the Senate uh, has, needs to finish the job. Um, we're, the Heritage Foundation is certainly going to encourage them to to pick up this issue during the lame duck, um, along with a couple other critical national priorities. Um, but regardless, for, between now and the next presidential election, we're going to be hearing a lot about health care and two very different visions for where we ought to go as a country. So for, for the Republicans and going forward, whether it be you know through the lame duck session or into the likely gridlock, uh, what what I mean? What should some of the key messaging and key program ideas that Republicans should tout to kind of gain uh, gain regain the confidence in a post Obamacare solution and vision? Absolutely. So uh, conservatives have spent the last gosh uh, year or so really coming up with a robust answer to that. We have about. Heritage Foundation has been working with conservatives all across the country, and we have about 90 conservatives who have endorsed a plan that would really emphasize the need to give everybody the ability to choose the right coverage for them, um, whether you're, you're Bill Gates or whether you're poor, um, and doing, doing, taking the steps that's necessary to make sure that people can choose from a wide range of coverage options um, and that and enjoy lower costs as, as well as better choices. And this would also be an approach that would take care of people who are afraid that they might not be able to access care, so people are sick or may not have the money to do so. In stark contrast, what left is trying to do, which is double down on the failed experiment of Obamacare, which really expanded government's control of health care to unprecedented levels. They want to double down on that and uh, do for the rest of the country what they did in that market for 15 million people. And I think that should scare us because um, it means that we would lose our, our private health coverage. They want to outlaw private health coverage. So I think it's really important that um, Republicans coalesce around the vision that conservatives are offering and uh, put forward a real alternative that people can understand. So lo- looking forward to the to, to the, uh, the new Congress, the new House, the, 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 uh, the, the bolstered Senate, are there any key figureheads that conservatives should look forward to, to being the, the, the harbinger of these messages? 
Well, we certainly, you know, I think the, the key thing is less about one or two people, although I could, I could name a couple who I think are, are burgeoning heroes. But I, I think that as a whole, the party needs to coalesce around, around a vision. And what we saw this um, over the last year after Obamacare failed was Republicans either trying to run away, not talk about it, or offering lots of uh, what I would refer to as knee-jerk solutions that, if implemented, would actually probably not do, not do it well, could do some serious harm certainly wouldn't do much good. So, you know, I think people, um, the, the party as a whole needs to take a hard look at where it, where it is and coalesce around this vision. And, and I would encourage them to look at the vision that conservatives have been putting forward. What do you see as the most likely outcome? I think the most likely, well, I certainly hope and think the Senate needs to act in order to bring down costs and improve choices in the near term. People are still suffering under Obamacare. Um, if they don't uh, finish the job in the lame duck, we're going to look at two years of, um, of people talking about their vision of whether they want to take health care in this country. Is it more government or is it more choices? And they'll have an election that really looks at that issue in 2020. Marie Fishpaw, I certainly appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate the information, and uh, we'll certainly uh, keep in touch as this, uh, this issue is going nowhere. And uh, we certainly uh, appreciate you taking the time out today on a not-so-slow news day. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Marie Fishpaw, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the uh, Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity, talking about where do we go now with health care, uh, where do we, uh, you know, what is important uh, what is the important messaging? Certainly, uh, um, I think a, a lot of people expected uh, when they elected the Republicans in 2016 to get it done. And here we are in 2018 with uh, the House majority lost, and it did not get done. So uh, certainly, um, I, I think that's a question on a lot of people's mind. What happens now? Are my rates going to keep going up? Uh, are they going to go down? Um, how is that going to happen? And what are you guys going to do about it? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blunt sitting in for Georgine Rice. And before we go to break, I just want to take a, another quick uh, update uh, for those um, who are out of the loop, if you will. Um, as far as the, the election results from last night, um, it, it certainly uh, not very much surprise at all anywhere. Uh, New Bueller lost the uh, governor's race to Kate Brown. Really wasn't close. Um, and uh, apart from uh, Measure 102 passing to uh, allow local bonds for financing affordable housing, uh, all of the other measures went down to failure. So certainly, um, as we discussed earlier in the program with uh, Jason Williams from uh, the uh, uh, Oregon Watchdog, not a banner day for conservatives in, in Oregon. Uh, certainly a, a much more tempered day across the country for conservatives as uh, gains were made in the Senate, uh, losses in the House, and the loss of the control. Uh, a couple interesting governor's races out there, a couple interesting Senate races still hanging the balance out there. Um, and um, across the river in Washington, it may be tomorrow before we know uh, for sure if um, uh, Jamie Herrera Butler has uh, retained her seat in the uh, Congress as well. Um, always kind of amazes me in the year 2018 that uh, in several elections throughout the country, we still don't know. And it may be another day or two in some of these 
in some of these states, especially the smaller ones, it may be a few days even more that than that. But uh, that's what we're looking at. Uh, that's just kind of a brief update on what uh, what we're seeing with the election results around the state and around the country. And uh, we've got more of the Georgine Rice Show coming up in just a few minutes. I'm James Blind, along with the engineer Justin Mansfield. Thank you for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. We'll be back on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back to the Georgine Rice Show, 93.9 KPDQ FM. I'm James Blind, producer of the program, sitting in for Georgine. She'll be back in this chair on Monday, the 12th, so just coming up in a couple of days. Uh, glad to have you with us on this day after the election day. Certainly um, a lot of TV coverage of uh, not just the uh, the lead-up to last night, but last night as well. And uh, certainly, let, let's just say there tends to be a little bit of a lean on that coverage. And we wanted to check in with our good friends at the Media Research Center. Uh, Jeff Dickin, Deputy Research at MRC, joins us to talk a little bit about... Uh, what we saw and didn't see last night. Uh, Jeff, thank you for taking the time out today. It's safe to have you on. So let's talk a little bit about this. Start with the, um, uh, let's call it the million-dollar question. How accurate was the reporting? Well, yeah, so last night, I think going in, before the, the polls was starting to close and the results came in, you, you had uh, the media predicting uh, this massive blue wave, the tsunami, some said. And as the evening went on and on, you actually saw people like uh, Jake Tapper, Van Jones, especially looking very depressed because the Democratic victories did not got up the way they thought. In fact, Van Jones used the word heartbreaking. Uh, I think uh, so. It was interesting to watch, you know, MSNBC and analysts and CNN reporters and anchors uh, just kind of try to break it, especially Rachel Maddow, who's trying to break it to her liberal audience that it's not going to be the big way that for Democrats that they were anticipating. So I, I think, uh, I mean, typically speaking, you know, as far as the conservative viewpoint goes, it, you have what we consider the, the, the good, better, best, and it's all the same network. Um, and then, um, you know, the rest. Who, I mean, apart from the, the, the standard go-tos, were anybody um, seeming less biased than usual, or was it just the usual bias all across the board? It was his usual bias. I mean, it was interesting to see, like, they kind of had, uh, they sort of picked their stars. They were like, because today is, you know, when the, not to shock your audience, but today is when the 2020 presidential election is going to start in earnest, because that's just the way the cycles are going nowadays. But they, they had their stars. They're young, they had their... You're, you know, you're, you're Andrew Gillum, the guy who's running for uh, governor in Florida. You had, uh, of course, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, who they were excited and they were hoping you know, uh, Democrats poured some, Democrats only poured $32 million for that race. And uh, you had uh, uh, Stacey Abrams, and I guess that, that's uh, uh, Georgia, and, uh, so, and, and and they all lost. And, 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 and so they were you know, crestfallen, but then you started to see them go, so these kind of, I thought, sort of silly things, like, well, even though Beto lost, you saw this in the morning show this morning, even though Beto Rourke lost, even though Andrew Gillum lost, they still are leading contenders for, for the 2020 presidential nomination for the Democratic Party. It's like, really, how do you go from losing a local race or, or a statewide race uh, and catapulting yourself to 
to a presidential candidate. This, this, this is how desperate they were to, to find a, a new star for the Democrats. Well, I noticed even that the O'Rourke story had broken prior to the closing of polls in Texas. I had seen it in print form earlier, about probably about this time yesterday, that either way it's a victory for O'Rourke. It's like, uh... Right. <laughs> okay. That seems like spin. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what... Uh, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. What, what was, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about some of the stuff that's maybe a little bit more laughable on the side of things. What did you find most comical last night? Uh, oh, yeah, it was the spin that, uh, you know, they, they, you know, these candidates lost, somehow they won. Um, I think you also, uh, and you had celebrities going nuts. You had, the, of course, your, your late late talk show hosts, your Stephen Colbert's and, and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, and, and your Hollywood stars, I mean, clearly they were, they were expecting a bigger night, and it was just to see the meltdown on Twitter. It's, we actually have it documented on, on newsbusters.org, our website. Uh, I encourage your, your listeners to go check it check it out. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was um, I mean, they won the House. They got the House back. They just got the House back. So I guess they should be happy about it. But they clearly, they had imagined a much bigger wave than, than, than what happened. So, so last night's reporting uh, and the quality thereof, or lack thereof, uh, definitely spilled into the press conference today with the president. How bad did they do this cycle, in your opinion? Well, um, yeah, I, it, it, they, 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 I mean, it wasn't as bad as how off they were in the 2016 cycle, but it was, it was pretty bad in terms, of, in terms of sort of predicting the way the races would go. Um, I think I was kind of built in and assumed that the Democrats would win the House, but they were expecting some some massive, you know, hashtag resistance movement out there in in America. And I think what you saw is maybe, yeah, sort of your progressives sort of ran the table in in uh, in New York City. You're kind of patting the stats there. You're just you're winning by larger margins in these already liberal districts. So in terms of like you know your, your swing states like the Senate race in Missouri, you had McCaskill losing, and 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 a lot of these other races that that they really didn't show up. So the media I think was very much crestfallen, and and of course the press conference today was just that was remarkable with Acosta. But uh, anyway, no, I think they 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 got it wrong. So from from uh, Kavanaugh into the election cycle and now into Jeff Sessions, will will Jim Acosta ever sleep again? That's the question. <laughs> he might not. Uh, that that uh, I've been I've been watching press, presidential press conferences for you know decades, and I can't remember the last time I saw a performance like that by a, by a reporter. I mean, yeah, sure, I've seen reporters ask tough questions. I've seen reporters ask biased questions, uh, but to just like refuse to give up the microphone and 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 be just so obstinate that was. I, you know, it was remarkable. So, in the in the in the last few days before the election, I just wanted to get your take on this. Um, you know, obviously, one of the uh, um, the the bastions of our society over the last forty plus years has been the, the political commentary, the snide political commentary, typically liberal leaning of Saturday Night Live. And certainly, there are a lot of people, myself included, who feel like one of the jokes on Saturday may have gone more than a little too far, directed at uh, Texas Republican Dan Crenshaw. Talk a little bit about uh, Pete Davidson. Yeah, this was, 
I was actually watching it live. Um, I don't know why, but I was, and I was just like, wow, that's, that's going to backfire. He, he made this, he was going through all these uh, uh, candidates and, 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 and politicians, and he was making fun of their looks, and then he gets to, it's actually, he lost his eyes swimming, I think it was Iraq, is where he lost it, with an ID and, and, and Iraq, and he says, like, oh, look at this guy, he looks like the, what's the, you know, the eye patch, it looks like some, uh, 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 a bad guy in a porno movie, and then he said, uh, oh, I guess you lost it, and then whatever, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, what? How do you have that kind of attitude? And it was, uh, and for, and I think it was nothing for him to make the joke, but I'm sure he made that joke during rehearsal. So the entire SNL writing staff and Lauren Michael, the producer, were, were cool with that. It's like, what the fuck? So I said, hey, Crenshaw won uh, uh, yesterday, and, and so he's, he has the last laugh. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, the point out to, to the, you know, those not familiar with Pete Davidson, uh, his father died in 9-11, so, you know, I just kind yeah, of... firefighter went to the tower, yeah. Yeah, and so it was just, to me, it was a bit, I mean, even for SNL, I mean, just when I think they can't shock me anymore, uh, they certainly can. Before before we wrap up, t- you mentioned it earlier. Tell us again about Newsbusters and what people can find there because it's it's a valuable site and worth checking out on a daily basis. Oh, thank you so much. So yeah, it's uh, we had a night crew on election night going to the wee hours of the morning because the news cycle is twenty four seven. You just find the worst, uh, biased uh, uh, example of the bias in the media, and also you'll see you know, of course Hollywood and and uh, you know. Uh, it's just, it's newsbusters.org, and it's, they got videos, they got analysis, we got studies, uh, and, and, and analytics, if you will. It's all there. Well, Jeff Ticket, I appreciate the work that you guys do. I appreciate that the effort you put in, and I appreciate you keeping an eye on the people who need to have their eyes kept on, and I certainly appreciate you joining me this afternoon. Thank you. Have a great one. Jeff Dickin, Deputy Research Director for MRC, joining me on the Georgine Rice Show. And we'll be back in a few minutes to wrap things up. This is 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 93.9 KPDQ. Glad to have you along. I'm James Blunt sitting in for Georgine Rice. We'll be returning from her trip on Monday. And we're looking at some of the election aftermath and some of the things that have been going on around the world and around the country. Uh, as uh, we see on this Wednesday, uh, the the after effects of all of the, um, the, the election last night and, uh, you know, Quite frankly, some of the burnout that we all feel as well, but uh, trying to put the topic to bed for now. And joining me to talk a little bit about um, how the uh, Democrats took the House and uh, how, how we should react to it is uh, Lee Edwards, Ph.D., Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Institute for Cons- Constitutional Government, a leading historian of American conservatism and the author and, or editor of 25 books. Dr. Edwards, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, James. Thank you. So is there anything more that can be said or should be said about the elections? I guess it's inevitable. So here we go. Absolutely. Now, (laughs) I'm certainly curious as to, you know, what makes a defeat and what makes a victory? Well, that's a marvelous question. And just briefly, I would say this, that there are five essential elements 
of a political campaign. Money, organization, the candidate, issues, and the media. And you can take those five elements and apply them to almost any election, and you'll come up with who is going to win. So, for example, the Democrats did very well in fundraising, and that was one of the reasons why they were able to carry the House. Uh, they did not have the best candidates possible, which is the reason why they were losing some seats in the Senate. The media, which which was tilted so much towards uh, the Democrats, helped them to, I think, bring about that blue wave uh, in the House. So how, how should Republicans view the results from last night? Well, I think there are a couple of different things. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the president, of course, is going to say he won. It was a victory for him. And in a sense, it was because he was able to campaign and pull out some close victories in the Senate. But at the same time, uh, the the House now is going to be in the hands of Nancy Pelosi and the other uh, progressives there in the House. So that that could present some real problems as to how they're going to use their newfound majority. Uh, are they going to legislate or are they going to investigate? And so that that remains to be seen right now. As a matter of fact, there's even something of a mini revolt against Nancy Pelosi herself, though I do think she's going to be elected again as speaker. I don't think the Democrats are going to going to throw her overboard. I think that uh, what we have here once again is divided government. We've had it in the past, uh, and it looks to me as though the American people are very comfortable with it. They don't want one party to have too much power for too long, which I think is one of the clues as to why the Democrats were able to carry the House, but not the Senate. Well, certainly as somebody who's a historian, put this into a little bit into a historical context. To me, it feels like uh, a fairly typical midterm, um, albeit with the gains in the Senate uh, being a, you know, a little bit of an anomaly in this situation. Mm-hmm. Talk about historically what midterms mean to the to the party in, in the White House. Well, I think we can go back and see that in the last 70 or 80 years, there have only been three occasions when that uh, the midterms resulted in a victory for the party, the same party of the gentleman who was in the White House. Uh, one of them was FDR, one of them was Kennedy, and one of them was Bill Clinton uh, after the uh, the impeachment proceedings in the House. So it's very rare, and it's something, as I say, that the American people are comfortable with. They're not panicking, and I think they've sent a signal, uh, and we'll have to wait and see how, how the both the Democrats and the Republicans, if they're going to perhaps, to my mind, what has usually happened uh, James, after something like this, is that there is a period of bipartisanship, and uh, we'll see whether or not that is what happens with the Democrats and the Republicans this time around. Well, certainly, I mean, we're coming off a, a period normally uh, not as contentious, perhaps, as uh, the, the last few months have been between the Democrats and Republicans during the, the, the whole uh, Kavanaugh confirmation. Right. And well, what is going to be, uh, I think, guiding whether or not this bipartisanship is possible? And I'm, I'm not, you know, terribly optimistic about it, but it is possible. It's one possible scenario. And that is that people will be looking ahead already 
to the next presidential election in two years from now, in 2020. And that will affect how people are going to be acting and reacting or not acting in some cases here in, in Washington. So whether we have brief cooperation or nonstop gridlock, how, how should we prepare for the next two years? Well, I think what we, what I think what the voters ought to do, and depending upon whether they were for, you know, whichever party it was and whichever candidate it was, expect him or her, uh, and this was a terrific uh, development, by the way, and that is there's so many uh, female uh, women who were running uh, this time and winning, and that that is something which is. Uh, uh, going to, I think, affect the outcomes. I think that will be more lending itself to bipartisanship. But I think that the voters should say and expect their their congressman or their senator to do what he promised to do in the campaign. And if not, to make it very clear that uh, the next election is not that far away and they'll take appropriate action. One of the things that's occurred to me over the past couple of years is that uh Republicans, particularly those of the of the conser- conservative persuasion, uh, more so than than some that perhaps are more moderate, um, tend to be a little bit more um, rough with their messaging. And even when they're in the right, they don't necessarily come across that way. What way? How can conservatives get themselves in a good messaging position for future success with uh, twenty twenty only two years away? Well, I think they have to do that, James. And if they don't, then they're they're going to see that base shrink that much more. As I mentioned, made reference to the suburban college-educated women who voted in tremendous numbers, something like a 16 or an 18-point edge for Democrats over Republicans. Uh, what's going to make that up for the Republican side, for the conservative side? They will have to figure out a way to speak uh, more uh, diplomatically, if you will, um, more uh, charitably, if you will, uh, about issues and about their opponents. Uh, they're not going to be able just to depend upon ad hominem arguments over and over and over again. And I think the president is going to have to be one of those as well, is going to take cognizance of that. And I think he's already begun that a little bit uh, with his press conference this afternoon. What uh, last question for me? What if uh, any surprises did you see last night that uh, specifically on the positive side of things that uh, gives you hope uh, for the future? Well, I think I think I'm I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, always have been here in in Washington D.C. as a conservative all of these years. So I think what we can take away from this is the fact that that the there was no blue wave that there was both a blue wave in the house and a red wave in the senate and i think that augurs well for the future because that means that these two parties and their leaders are going to have to sit down and talk about things and come up with proposals that each can subscribe to. And maybe maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I do see the possibilities of some bipartisanship on important issues like infrastructure uh, and even uh, uh, perhaps on on trade as well. Uh, So I think that's what we can certainly look to as a strong, well, I would say as a strong possibility in the next two years. Dr. Edwards, I certainly appreciate you taking the time out on what I would uh, safely call uh, not a slow news day. 
<laughs> My pleasure, James. Take care. Thank you. Dr. Lee Edwards, Distinguished Fellow in Conservative Thought for the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation, and is also a leading historian of American conservatism and the author of 25 books. So certainly appreciate his wisdom, his uh, his knowledge, and uh, his input on uh, the, the events of yesterday and what we should be looking forward to over to the next two years. And that'll wrap things up for this edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm James Blinn, producer of the Georgine Rice Show. Been sitting in for Georgine. We'll be back with you on Monday. Remember, uh, Joseph Amfuso will be with us tomorrow and on Friday, Pastor Clark Tanner. I want to thank uh, Justin Mansfield for engineering today's program and thank each and every one of you for making us a part of your day, a part of your Wednesday afternoon and evening here on the Georgine Rice Show on 93.9 KPDQ. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.